there's a big difference between being uncomfortable and being unsafe. In fact, psychological safety almost by definition means being safe, being uncomfortable. We can feel safe and be pushing ourselves as hard as we can go because we are safe to fail. Psychological Safety at Work, a season of podcasts from Talking Leaders. Hello, welcome to the final episode in the season of Psychological Safety at Work. I'm Paul Gisby. For the season finale, I was delighted to get some time with renowned expert in the field of psychological safety, Tom Geraghty. Tom has extensive experience working with teams and organisations to help them with their psychological safety. And in the course of his work, he's come across several recurring myths about psychological safety, what it is and what it isn't. But he's never formally shared them with anyone. So for this episode, that's what we did. Welcome to Talking Leaders podcast. In this season, we're looking at psychological safety at work. And I'm delighted to be able to welcome to the podcast today, Tom Geraghty, who is a renowned expert. Nay, I think you're what's called a guru, Tom, in one <laughs> podcast I heard. Um, so welcome to Talking Leaders. Could you start us off by giving us a bit of background on yourself and, and uh, how you got into psychological safety and what you do in the in the field now? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. I think that might be the first time I've been called a guru. I like it. So my name is Tom Geraghty. I'm the founder of psychsafety.co.uk. We'll, we'll start at the start. My first job title was experimentalist, um, which I've kind of retained throughout my career. Throughout my career, I've had, uh, I, I sort of ended up in technology and then, and then into technology leadership roles. Let's say around 10 to 15 years ago, I, I was in a, in a role where I experienced a very, very significantly a culture of fear, uh, an intentional culture of fear created by a, by a manager. And he, like, he thought he was doing the right thing. It's not, he was some evil skeletal kind of character. Um, um, but it, it, I saw the effect that that had on the team and the organization. And I, and I, from then on, sort of vowed to do the opposite of that, create a, an, an opposite culture. I, I didn't really have the words for it at the time. But what I was doing um, I was creating, I was trying to create a culture of psychological safety. And then a few years ago, I, I came across the term psychological safety, maybe six or seven years ago. And, and it was a proper epiphany moment. The, one of those real moments when, everything just locks together and comes together and and it, and I suddenly had the words for the things that I was trying to do and the umbrella term that I could hang everything off and that that was when I started to write about it talk about it and it gave me something that I could hang my talks on and and you know um and actually put, scaffold everything around so so that's so that's so it took me to where I am now and I and now I talk to loads of organizations all around the world and in different um domains and industries from aviation to healthcare and technology and all sorts of stuff to uh, to try and foster psychological safety around the world. Yeah. And you also, you, you will go into organizations, won't you, and actually help them directly with, yeah. with their psychological Yeah, yeah. I, I work with quite a few um, quite a few organizations. Yeah, as I said, last week I was working with a large financial organization. Yeah, we, we work directly with leadership, with with the teams themselves, and and with trainers in the organization to sort of scale up and create communities within those organizations as well. So yeah, we we're very uh, I'm very much hands on in there, um, trying to trying to make stuff happen, and and that, that's the fun bit really. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. All right. So when we spoke when we were doing the prep for this podcast, uh, the one thing I said is I don't want to do the the obvious thing, which is the history of psychological safety, because there's a brilliant video you've already put out which covers that, which I shall link to in the notes. So there's no point in repeating that. And I didn't really want to do what I've done with a lot of other people is to get views on what psychological safety means to you and that kind of thing, because I think I'm, I'm, we're covering that. Um, and it was your idea, which I think is a brilliant one, that we do a bit of myth busting. Mm. There's no one better placed to bust myths about this than you. So we've got seven myths around psychological safety, which we're going to go through and uh, and and bust them. So let's, let's start at the top. Uh, myth number one: uh, psychological safety means that you can say anything. It's basically a free speech space. And you could say anything, you know, no matter what it might be. 
even something quite extreme. Yeah, this is an interesting one because this, this I've heard, I, in fact, all of these myths that we're going to talk about, I've heard multiple times, but this, this I hear quite a lot. And it, I, I've, I've also heard this sort of phrased almost or, or contextualized as, as teams that are too psychologically safe. Yeah, psychological safety doesn't mean that you can say whatever you want. It does mean that you feel safe to say, it, it, it means that you feel safe to speak up. It means that you feel safe i.e. you won't suffer negative interpersonal consequences for asking questions, uh, suggesting ideas, raising concerns, or admitting your mistakes. Now, that's absolutely true. It doesn't mean that you can say something that you, you, that you just want to say, if it, especially if the intent behind that thing is not really positive. And, you know, I've, I've heard people in groups and teams, we, we, we've all been in groups and teams where someone has said something homophobic, something racist, something harmful to someone in the group, or in fact, someone not in the group. In fact, that's more often the case, isn't it? When someone says something harmful about people, about out-group people, um, in the belief that there won't be any consequences of doing so because none of those people were within the group. And so, so it's, it's okay, in quotes, to say it. But psychological safety doesn't mean that. In fact, in fact, it kind of means the opposite. What it means is that someone else in the group will feel psychologically safe to speak up and say, ah, ah, that's not, you shouldn't say that. That's not cool. Or, um, or I appreciate your intent behind that was positive, but actually you should say it this way. Or, or, or this is the more accepted term nowadays, you know. So language changes, terminology changes. I remember in an old job, we used to deal a lot with accessibility issues and things like that. So we'd talk about the people who would use those spaces, use um, the accessible bathrooms and things. And people would initially say things like disabled people. Um, and then and then it might be wheelchair. But then that, that, that so that... That language handicapped, handicapped was the was the, the oh. handicapped phrase. Yeah. Yes, handicapped people, disabled people, and and then it and then it evolves into wheelchair users because we begin to recognise the harm that, that that language causes, and of course it evolves all the time. And no one no one using the word handicapped meant anything by it. They, they weren't being intentionally cruel. But in in a psychologically safe space, someone will feel safe to speak up and say, "Ah, actually, the it's better to say." And in fact, I'm probably using the wrong term now, but I don't know what the, I, you know, if someone wants to correct me, I'm, I'm open for that. So the correct term may be wheelchair user, it may be something else. So yeah, it, it doesn't, psychological safety doesn't mean that you can say whatever you want. It means that you should, you should feel safe speaking your mind. But if someone else speaks up and says, oh, actually it's this or rather than that and tries to, and wants to. Okay, all right, and that's the advice then. So, if you're in a team and somebody says, "Way," so this means I can I can express my 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 extreme views, whatever they might be, politically or or uh, or culturally or whatever. Yeah, and uh, and and now I can really say what I think. In if you're in a team and you or you're the leader of that team, then you need to take advantage of hopefully the psychological safety that you have to say. Actually, that's not what we're about, and saying that and, and expressing those views is 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 not good for these reasons. And I challenge you on that, and you have a have that discussion. Yeah, it, it opens the space for the discussion, and I think we I've shared some stuff about nonviolent communication before, which we won't get deep into nonviolent communication. But effectively, that style of communication, nonviolent communication, is a very effective way of managing that sort of debate, particularly as you suggested, the sort of political discourse that might occur in a in a team, particularly if if there are people in a team from different contexts and backgrounds. When you say nonviolent communication, uh, I'd like to think pretty much all the communication I do is nonviolent. So I'm intrigued as to what what is violent communication. Then? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, yes. I mean, I guess the opposite of nonviolent communication would be violent communication, which is which is which is communication is intended to cause harm. But nonviolent communication is a method, a practice devised or developed by Marshall Rosenberg. He devised it not as a way to to decrease conflict, not as a way to avoid conflict, but as a way to increase empathy and improve the quality of communication between people, especially when experiencing conflict and with a particular mind to resolve conflict. So NVC is a, is a really, really fantastic model of of communication, really simple model of communication to um, to help us 
frame how how we could communicate in psychologically safe teams. NVC highlights observations, feeling needs, and requests. So it sort of says, "I I see this, I feel this, I need this, and I request this." Sort of that sort okay. of do you, structure. Do you have a good link that you could send me? I could put in the notes. There's a link to, uh, in fact, uh, uh, newsletter seventy six, which is a recent psychological safety newsletter, is on um, all about all about nonviolent communication, and, and is on psychsafety.co.uk. Right, I shall so, I shall yeah. do a link to that one. Brilliant. Okay. All right. Myth number two, and um, this has come up actually in some of the other conversations I've had. So people listening to the season will have heard this, but uh, this is an important one to 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 cover again. And that is psychologically safe spaces. These are my words, just characterising it are cosy and lovely where no one says anything horrid. And and I think in, it was put quite well in one of the ones, I think it was the conversation I had with the Q5ers, which is is it was around challenge. And, you know, there's no challenge. You never, No one's ever going to feel challenged. Yeah, and I think a psychologically safe space may, it may be cosy, but more likely, more likely it's going to be a space where we can and we want to challenge ourselves and challenge each other and we have a desire to achieve we have a desire to strive for better depending on the team we're in of course this might be a work team a project team a program team where we're trying to deliver a thing or it might be a sports team or or an orchestra or a band or it might be a mountaineering team and and i think this is in fact a mountaineering team is often the example i use because if anyone's familiar with nims die and his team of um, mountaineers when they did i think 14 peaks in seven months and they they had to overcome incredible odds and and and, and work in some of the most dangerous places on earth in you know ascending k2 in the winter where and k2 kills around a third of the people that reach its summit and um so they're they're existing in a very psycholo- psychologically safe team. They their Nim's team is incredibly psychologically safe in the sense that any of them can raise concerns, speak up with a concern that they've hurt their ankle, or they've they've get they're getting a headache, or they've or a bit of kit is broken, or they or they'd like to suggest a new route. Whatever it is, they're going to feel free and safe to speak up, but. They're existing in the, one of the most dangerous places on the planet, and they're trying to achieve this incredible goal that no one's ever achieved before. So psychologically safe teams aren't necessarily just cosy and safe and doing nothing. They can be some of the most high-performing teams that you'll ever come across. And it's, in fact, it's that psychological safety that enables teams to endure such existential danger and risk and challenge and enable teams to, to achieve such such awesome goals. Mm, mm. It's interesting you, you mentioned the mountaineering one because it's, it's funny how these morphic resonance works. Um, only a couple of weeks ago, I was watching a, a local TV program in Nottingham, actually, in the Nottingham area, and it was, it was talking to a guy who was a mountaineer, and he was talking about when they'd scaled the three pillars mountains, which I'd never heard of, which are particularly difficult and challenging. I don't think they're they're super high, but they're, they're just the, the, the face of it's very very uh, challenging. And he was talking about how they were they were going up there, and there was there were already ropes. A lot of these these places there were ropes already installed. So a colleague of his and his team went up, and then he followed him up. And then he he saw the guy. And he seemed to be in a slightly unusual position, so he called to him and reached out. And this guy turned around and just hurled this this shriek at him and use some pretty aggressive language f-bombs and all sorts of things which is basically don't touch that rope because it's going to break but he needed he felt it was important to stress that urgently to this guy in the strongest terms and uh you know the guy didn't say well you know don't speak to me like that or whatever he thought oh i won't you know i won't touch this rope it was it was actually very relevant to the moment that uh that he he spoke like but it because you know there was no problem about him doing that because it was it was an emergency yeah i and i think that's a really good point and in fact that's a perfect segue into the next myth isn't it because one psychologically safe environment does not look like another yeah that's it so myth number four is as you say one psychological well i I wrote it as uh, one psychologically safe environment looks pretty much like another they're all the same yeah yeah Yeah, well well, they're not so yeah go for it exactly exactly and and 
where this myth comes from is that, and this is a bit of a problem with the field of psychological safety itself, that a lot of the research, a lot of the voices, uh, a lot of the discourse comes from a particularly westernized, English-speaking, often white business context. The, a lot of the languages around sort of westernized, English-speaking business teams. And in that respect, and I think maybe because of that, the, the, the vision of what psychological safety tends to look like is a bit uh, like made a bit uniform, made a bit a, a bit bland almost, made a bit a, a bit u- ubiquitous. Um, a mountaineering team, or a sports team, um, or, or any other team actually, might th- what psychological safety looks like to them. Maybe maybe they're full of swearing. Maybe that you know they're they're shouting at each other. They're they're even like punching each other friendly and and stuff like that. And that to them is an incredibly psychologically safe space. To someone else who's not used to that environment, that may look very psychologically unsafe. And in fact, if they joined that team, then the dynamic would probably have to change and there'd be some interesting dynamics as, as the team sort of changed and melded to, to, to ex- accept and, em- and embrace the new individual with their, with their different thinking. But, but the point is that, yeah, psychological safety isn't the same. In fact, every team's psychological safety will look different. A technology team, a, a psychologically safe technology team, a you know, software development team is going to look very different to a psychologically safe surgical team or a team of firefighters or um, or a band, a rock band or something, some, you know, a group of people. And that's partly because of the, the work we're doing, the things we're doing, the things we're trying to achieve, the things we're trying to build, the, what, the outcome we're trying to generate. It's partly because of the people involved and psychological safety for neurodiverse folks. Uh, we, we had a great meetup recently with Sam Nuth um, from Red Hat speaking about neurodiversity and autism and neurodivergence and, and how that reflects, how that manifests in psychological safety terms. And it looks really, really different for different people, psychological safety. And so we must be careful to not sort of impose this this Western view or Westernized English-speaking view of psychological safety as a blanket. All right, all right. Teams. But, okay, so I get that. But it, it, uh, is there a sort of list of i don't know what to call them, criteria or features that are universal that you'd say okay the, the expression of psychological safety in different teams is very contextual and, and and needs to be but nonetheless all these teams have these four five ten i don't know things in common and if you if, if a team has those they're psychologically safe and another team may have them be psychologically safe even if when you walk into a room with those teams, the environment feels very different because of the, the way it's expressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think actually the best thing to do is to go back to Amy Edmonton's definition of psychological safety and that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. And also her, her, her definition that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. The, the, the slight challenge there is that we've got the term speaking, speaking up, and uh, speaking up might be very different for different people the ideas questions concerns and mistakes are still true true across all domains but speaking might look very different to different people some people can't speak some people speak different languages some people may prefer to communicate in written format via chats or or or, or email or, or whatever it is and some people may you know some people will communicate via sign language and and whatever it is i think and this leads into the second to the next myth which is about silence mm. but we commu- we all communicate in different ways and we all have different preferences and i've been in groups of people online say on discord groups or slack slack communities where none of us have ever communicated verbally at all ever but we we exist in a psychologically safe space even though actually the only communication that goes between us is is written you know, via text on keyboard. So let's move on to that one then, because we, you, you did, as you said, we do have a, a specific one uh, around this. And I'm, I'm very interested in this one because it's not something I would have thought of. Silence, this is someone saying, silence means things are unsafe. There's a problem. Mm. What, what do you mean by that one then? This is this is an interesting one because, th- and I've seen, I've seen this shared quite a lot by quite prominent, uh, I think what we call leadership thought leaders or, or whoever um that silence is a bad sign silence means 
the group is unsafe. Again, I think we should be really careful with this because silence doesn't necessarily indicate a lack of psychological safety in a group. A group that is psychologically unsafe may indeed be quite silent, but but silence itself doesn't necessarily indicate a lack of psychological safety. And if we think about this, that in fact, in a very psychologically safe group, silence may you, you may get more silence because people may become more comfortable with the silence you know we, we all know how it is to how uncomfortable it is to ask a question in a meeting particularly online sometimes and and for there to be silence like seconds and seconds and and especially as the question asker you 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 feel like every every second takes an hour or that that the void of silence is deafening and and so you may think you may feel oh no, everyone's, this is really a psychologically unsafe space. No one feels safe to speak up. But actually, actually what might be happening is that people feel safe enough to take their time, think about what they want to say, put their words in order, find the words they're hunting for, and then speak up. And actually that silence may well be the this, one of the strongest indicators of psychological safety. And it's just people waiting, well, not waiting, it's people fight, being comfortable with the time taken to come up with their response. And of course, there's there's another aspect of silence as well, which comes back to, which goes back to the previous answer, which is that I've worked with software development teams who you walk into their office, their room, and it's dark, the windows are shut, and they've all got headphones on, and they're on the keyboards. And it, to some people, this might look like a very unsafe space. No one feels safe to talk. They're not. They're not talking to each other. But actually, actually, they're all there talking to each other on chat. They're messaging people next to each other. You know, they're they um, and they've got music on their headphones. That's just the way they like to work. That's their preferred environment. They they really enjoy that environment. So so we should be careful to not yeah. So again, not impose this view that silence is bad. But I'm intrigued. Then. So what what are the kind of things that you've seen that people will do then if they've if they've interpreted silence as, as being a bad sign what what, what 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 do they then do i think particularly in facilitation so facilitators and managers i think and i know we because uh, i have this as well we, we when we ask a question it is incredibly difficult to provide the space that depth of silence required to allow people the time to put their thoughts together so what I see and what I what I um, what I see a lot, and I know I'm inclined. I know we're all inclined to do this. Is ask a question, and then if no one answers straight away, we we want to fill the silence when we give our own answer. And in fact, you know that's one that's probably one of the worst things you can do. What once or twice is not that bad, but over time, over time that's going to build into a into a culture where people don't feel they can speak up or, or feel, feel that their leader is the only one with the answers because they always give the answer. They ask a question, then they provide the answer. I encourage people, I encourage myself and I encourage everyone to practice actually counting to five, six or even seven slowly in your head when you after you've asked a question. It will feel like forever, but actually to people in the, in the room, it's fine. They're just, they're just, they're just formulating what they want to say. I mean, it can be a particular challenge, can't it? I was thinking back over teams I've worked with. Um, when, you, when you've got a mixed team, and actually most teams are mixed, it's, it's very, very unlikely that you'll get a completely homogenous group. Um, I, the, the, the example that's, that's ringing loud in my head is, is uh, I used to work for a, uh, an Anglo-American-Swedish pharmaceutical company. I remember when we first started working with, with teams made up from people from all three of those countries and beyond. Um, it, 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 cross-cultural differences came in, but also just different preferences. And there's one particular person who rarely would participate in the deeper discussions in a team. I mean, he would make some contributions, but he was frequently very quiet. Um, but that was, I soon learned that that was because he was a deep reflector. And he liked to do, which a lot of the, the Swedish teams that I worked with liked to do, which was, Okay, uh, and the Americans hate, in particular hated this. A topic would be brought up for discussion and decision, and the point was, well, we're going to decide in this meeting. Whereas 
I won't mention, won't give his name, but this particular person, along with some of his other colleagues, would no, I want to take it away and cogitate on it because it's so important, and then I'll come back and give my 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 thoughts. And um, and certainly in the early days, I remember particularly some of the more exuberant, more extroverted members of the team would say, "What's wrong with him? You know, he never says anything." Well, he does, but he, you know. He wants to work out, and, wh- and when he does say something, it's worth listening to because he's thought about it rather than just shooting from the hip. But um, that, that could be quite a challenge to mix to manage that mix. Yeah, 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 definitely a challenge to manage that mix. Most groups of any decent size will probably consist of some people who would prefer to take some time and cogitate and think about their response and and, and plan and articulate a response or, or an idea, and and other people who just want to di- dive straight in and and. And you you often see it, don't you, with with people who who want to dive straight in. The first few things they say are filler. They're sort of filling time. They're sort of filling the space and and using that time to then line up their response. Where someone else might just they're happy sitting in silence while they think about it. So yeah, yeah, it takes good facilitation techniques. Yeah, to, I mean, I certainly know. one thing I've learned about myself um, is I develop my thinking by hearing what I think. I mean, I have an idea. But but actually, I, I quite often have to talk, and 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 hear myself explaining my own ideas to then modify them. And, 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 and I know there are other people who do that. And other people find that quite frustrating. Which is, well, why don't you just sit and think about it, and then say what you mean? Well, for some reason, it doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't work like that? So, is that something you would do with a team? Then is 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 uh, try and get them to understand how what dif- different people's preferences and requirements are yes in fact that's a great that's a great point yeah I, I think there's there's there is incredible value in uh in tools such as personal readmes or personal charters um and things tools like that uh that uh where, where individuals can take the time to write down what their what their preferences are what their communication preferences are what their work styles are what their work patterns are how you know what, what times of day they like to work what um how they like to interact what 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 excites them what triggers them what 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 motivates them and all, all this stuff put it all together into one document um and and as part of that document it could be you know I, this is how i like to formulate my ideas and, and come up with things in meetings and this is how i like to communicate and, and that all then so there's value in just creating that document that thing and i and i know i've got one i know lots of people who create that document and it's kind of a living document you could not share that with anyone and it would still have value because it's it's a really great self-reflection exercise if you do share it with people particularly in a group that you work together so a, a team then that can come together and help form a team charter the team social contract the team charter the the document that describes what the team does and how the team works. And that becomes really, really powerful because that then starts to articulate explicitly how are we going to you know, come together in, in meetings or, or discussions and how are we going to interact and facil- facilitate these ideas and, and, and achieving great things together. Super, super powerful. Takes a bit of work, but yeah, really good idea. And actually, why we're we talking about, about this kind of thing, so... Uh, I think a lot of people, when they think about psychological safety, it's, it's, it's a thing. Oh, we should we should get into it, and so we'll 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 have a workshop, or we'll have someone come in, help us, or we'll do some stuff on our own, and we'll use some some tools, and then we'll we'll get set up. And I would say, well, once we've done it, it, it we, we're done. I'm guessing that's not the case, though, isn't it? Is, is that something that you'd recommend that people come back to it regularly? Yeah, yeah. This is something that I do come across for sure. I think. There is, there can be sometimes a bit of, and this, you see, you see this, I see this in the corporate world quite often where there can be a tendency to find the next thing, whatever that is, you know, employee wellbeing, psychological safety, um, OKRs, or whatever it is, do a course, do a session, do a workshop, tick that box, and then kind of forget about it and move on to the next thing. And yeah, and then if there's, if the conversation about psychological safety turns up, then oh yeah yeah we did that six months ago we're good. <laughs> no, that's not. I'm afraid that's not how it works. Is it, it psychological safety is the outcome? It's the outcome of interpersonal behaviours, values, and practices 
that evolve and and build over time and we so in that sense it's never it's never done there's always more work to do partly because we'll never reach this sort of utopian state of complete psychological safety that's unrealistic plus the world changes the, the, the teams change people le- join and leave teams people in we we change in our, in, in our team so so uh, whilst whilst the team may consist of the same people over five years the people in that team have changed they've they've moved house they've they've changed partners they've got married they've got divorced they've had children they've had members of the family die they've they've learned new things on the job they've been involved in different projects they they've experienced depressions and recessions and different governments and Lord knows what else is going on right now. It's a concerted, continuous effort to, to foster psychological safety, and it never ends. And I think sometimes people don't want to hear that it never ends, but it does never end. So how do you recommend people do that? And do you have do you have sort of, you know, little little techniques, the things that people should should can apply on a, a you know, a recurring basis? Yeah, I think there are some core elements to, to fostering psychological safety, some sort of essential pieces. And as we as we then sort of grow outwards it becomes more contextual and, and more specific some some core pieces are things like admitting mistakes if we practice admitting our own mistakes particularly if we're in a leadership position or a position of privilege within the team like if we've been on the team a long time and other people haven't then admitting our own mistakes uh creates implies and suggests and creates a safe environment for other people to do the same and that's really really powerful because the mistakes are there Mistakes are always going to get made. So the best thing we can do is talk about them. There's, I mean, this, this is suggested by Amy Edmonton's original research into clinical teams, that teams that admit and talk about their mistakes are the highest performing teams. And it's that way around. It's, it's admitting your mistakes and talking about them that enables high performance. Um, there's th- yeah, there's things like admitting your mistakes. Um, there's things like running everything as experiments, framing work as as a way to learn about doing things better rather than a way to just like generate output. And then there's practices, practices such as retrospectives or or team charters, empathy mapping, and and all these other sorts of practices that we start to, uh, and once I start talking into practice, we could be here a a very long time. There's a lot of different practices we can employ. And then you get into domain-specific practices like um, the Andon Cord in manufacturing or um, Schwartz rounds, in 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 healthcare so yeah okay right myth number five this is an interesting one again i'm going to going to uh, phrase this one by by making you know, providing a hypothetical quote and this is is some maybe maybe a team leader or a manager or somebody who says well this psychological safety stuff is great and really important but my team we don't need to worry about it because we're special maybe that other team needs to worry about it but we're we're fine yeah, and this this is a good one because this is so in in my work I'm often brought in to to work with multiple teams in a, across an organisation, maybe across different business units and functions and things like that. And I often hear either my team, like from a manager, my team are great. We are, we've got nothing to worry about. We're we're I have a psychologically safe team. Everyone on my team will tell you that we're great. We're fine. This team over here, they need some help. I always really, really want to dive into further speaking to that team because invariably, and of course, like it, it's almost a priori true, of course it's it's not as simple as that. In that team, yes, that team may, that there may exist a, a degree of psychological safety in that team. It may be that there's really no psychological safety at all and that manager doesn't, want anyone to go poking you know maybe it's a whole hornet's nest and they just don't want any any uh, any any eyeballs on it at all or it might be that the manager actually is really progressive generative and trying to foster a great culture of psychological safety and maybe there are very few issues in that team but there will always be there's there's always something there's always something to improve always something to to make better and whether that's something from the past some some Baggage. I like to. I sometimes like to refer to the psychological safety backpack because we have to recognise as well that people join teams, people come to our teams, people come to our groups, carrying the backpack of their experiences from previous teams, previous organisations, previous managers. If someone's had a manager in the past that has been screamy, shouty, finger pointy, blamey, 
and has spoken over them in meetings or, or always criticised their ideas in, in ideation sessions. Now, they come to a new team that is psychologically safe, everyone's you know everyone's super nice everyone's generative everyone's like it's a great team but they're still carrying that baggage there's still something there's gonna be a little bit in their head just sort of dialing down the volume on on some of those ideas that get generated little little devil on the shoulder saying "Mm, don't admit that mistake because you might get in trouble for that um and it takes a long long time to shed that backpack to empty it of all the baggage that's sometimes not always that obvious for 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 team manager or leader to to understand because they are only thinking about their own context they don't know what man what what experiences all the people in the team have brought in and they're sort of in their head. yeah and people can you know, people get unfortunately have to get i suppose they feel so they have to get good at covering particularly if they find themselves uh, in a minority with, within a group people can be really really good at it but yeah. To, to their own detriment. Yeah, and in fact, this goes back to some of the neuro, uh, neurodiversity stuff and 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 what psychological safety looks like for different people. Because particularly for neurodiverse folks, there's this concept of masking, and uh, which is the same as covering, really. The the putting on your um, for, so for a neurodiverse or neurodivergent person, depending how you identify, you you may feel that when you go out into society or into your team at work, you put on your, your neurotypical mask and it's quite a, it's hard work. It's constant and it's draining because you're putting so much energy into maintaining this mask. You've got less energy and less cognitive capacity left to apply to the, to the thing you're trying to do in fostering greater psychologically safe spaces. We're also trying to create spaces where people don't feel they need to, Put on the mask, or they, or maybe, maybe all we can hope for is that people feel they need, they can take more of the mask off slowly over time. I don't think we're gonna, I don't think we're gonna reach this magical utopia straight away. But um, it, it, you know, the the less of a mask that people have to feel they have to wear, um, the better, the, the, the more safe they feel, and, and it's also this positive feedback loop where we can we can be a more cohesive. Um, high performing team if we do yeah. that yeah brilliant okay thank you all right two more myths to go they're sort of linked but let's do them in order so the first one is psychological safety is the responsibility of the leader of the manager yeah yeah uh i and i so i i see this quite a lot and so managers obviously have a great deal of responsibility for for fostering psychological safety and part of that's almost, in a sense, that's almost part of their job description. I've never seen it as part of a job description, but uh, but it should be. <laughs> um, as a manager, part of your job is is to help foster a psychologically safe space. However, it's not just like the the the, the manager can't do it by themselves. It would be incredibly. I, I can't even imagine a situation where the where the manager is solely responsible. For, for creating a psychologically safe space. However, where this comes from, I think, is, is is where people have had, like I've had in the past, managers who have almost intentionally created cultures of fear, managed through fear, um, managed and incentivized through fear of consequence for failing and things like that. Um, if you've ever seen the film Glen Gary, Glen Ross, yes. that, sort of, that yeah. sort of culture, that sort of vibe. And that's where this myth if you like comes from or this this belief comes from that that it's managers responsibility to create psychologically safe spaces um because um because we've all we, uh, many of us have been in those sorts of environments before and and so no it is um down to everyone on the team to create a psychologically safe space um on the basis that we all have the capacity to destroy psychological safety because we we can all uh, exhibit behaviour, act in ways that destroy psychological safety in a team, and thus, if we can all destroy psychological safety, it's on all of us. It's a it's a responsibility of all of us to foster psychological safety, because we all have the capacity to destroy it. Um, and so yeah, whilst there may whilst we I think we can say fairly safely. Um, 
that um, the there is a greater responsibility on people in management, in leadership roles, and people with greater privilege at work. So people who have had longer tenure, um, people who are more experienced, people who are um, who who represent majority groups. Say it's, there's a greater responsibility on people in those roles to do what they can to foster psychological safety. But no one's no one's free of it. It's 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 on all of us. We've we've all got to we've all got to do the work. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say though that the, the leaders, managers, they probably need to initiate the, yeah. the conversation, but not always, though. I guess, and then that, that, that leads us into the the, the 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 obverse of this one, which is the, which is our last myth, which is well, psychological safety isn't isn't is a leadership thing. It's down to individuals, and and people have to create their own en- environment. Um, and you've already said it's a yin and a yang. You have to have yeah. both. Yeah, yeah. And this, this, I think I've seen this myth almost as a, uh, a reflex to to the to the one that came before. The the sort of it's it's all on managers, it's all on leaders. And then this this myth is almost a reflex action against that one. And and that um, and that it's it's all on individuals. A manager has has no capacity to 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 address it. And I think. Obviously, there there is there's truth to all of these myths. There's there's you know there's elements of sprinkles of of truth and sprinkles of where this this comes from to 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 all of these. And it is on all the individuals in the team to foster psychological safety. But it is as we, as we said before, um, it is important for people in management and leadership roles to recognise the the extra authority, privilege, influence, and consequence that their actions can have on team members and it's 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 that consequence that we need to recognize sometimes and i think sometimes i mean all organizations are different some organizations have even you know used the word manager in different ways a manager in one organization is not really is not necessarily the same as a manager in another but i think we can all recognize that if we were sitting in a room if we were say a um a marketing team sitting on, in a room coming up with ideas for the next for the next year of, of marketing strategy and suddenly the CEO walks in the room and sits down at the table most of us in that on that table are going to feel less psychologically safe putting our ideas out on the table for brainstorming and and, and working out what you know and, and certainly admitting mistakes and things because the consequences of doing so are much greater because the CEO is sitting right there so um, we 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 must recognise the 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 differential, the privilege differential, the the, the consequence differential between people in different parts of the organisation, and the thus the um, the onus upon those individuals to foster psychological right. safe behaviours. Let me challenge you a little bit though on that. I think some people listening to this might might sort of be asking this question. Um, so we we talked about about the. Uh, climate of fear and so forth and and you know there's I, I don't think anyone could could really defend that but sometimes uh you know many situations sports a very good example um to get the best performance uh, coaches and leaders and managers would say that they need to push people and really push them quite hard or push people into mm. uncomfortable situations can that still be done in a psychologically safe space Absolutely yes. In fact, um, in fact, sport is a really good example of this. Um, and but the mountaineering pieces, you know, if we go back to them, it's uh, that's another example. The there's there's pushing, there's pushing and incentivizing and and helping people uh, reach their potential. Sometimes reaching and often, in fact, reaching our own potential requires requires us to be coached and pushed and 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 told that we've that we've got more in the tank we've got more to give we're capable of more than than what we're currently achieving sometimes for, whatever, for in many cases for whatever reason we we don't instinctively believe that we, we even if that makes per- that person feel uncomfortable there's a big difference between being uncomfortable and being unsafe in, in fact psychological safety almost by definition means being safe being uncomfortable we can feel safe in that space in that environment to be uncomfortable and be pushing ourselves as hard as we can go because we are safe to fail 
And if we're safe to fail, we're safe to push ourselves further and further and further until we get to the point where if we're playing sports or something, we just can't go any further. We can't go any faster. We, you know, we collapse and we're, and we're sick in the corner because we've just pushed ourselves to our limit. Um, and it's about finding those limits, whether it's limits of, of sporting achievement, athletic achievement, mountaineering, technological achievement, you know, flying to the moon or flying, you know, whatever it is, we, we will push further towards those limits if we if we feel psychologically safe to do so and safe to to fail safe to fail yeah, is the is yeah. the key point i i really love what you said there uncomfortable does not necessarily mean unsafe that is that is so true I and mean, what came into my mind when you said that is is at the various times i've i've dabbled in uh, creative writing and uh, you know you send your writing off to to people and you get you get feedback and uh, rejection and so forth and it's painful. It frequently is very painful. And but you have to go through it. You really do, in order to to improve. Because you're, especially if you're sending things off to publishers and, and agents and so forth, you're asking them to take you on. If they say no, we have to understand why they're saying no, and take it on board and do something about it. I remember going to a, a seminar about creative writing years and years and years ago. Um, a writing group that I, I was part of invited a, a guy from Manchester who wrote um, uh, fiction about boxing. That was his big thing. He was he was an amateur boxer himself, but he also wrote short stories and novels around boxing. But he described a group that he was in of of other writers who wrote about a variety of different things. And they did the classic writers group thing where you bring along your own work and, and read it out. But this was. This was sort of like writing groups I'd never been in before. This was the way you described it was writing groups on steroids. And he said they're very competitive environments. The meetings are very competitive and people can be, he, he actually said, quite aggressive in their, their feedback and so forth. And the meetings can be, can be very uncomfortable. But he, was, he loved it. He was a huge advocate of it. And he said, you know, when I take a piece of my work, I, I'm not looking forward to it because I'm going to get beaten up the same way as I get beaten up in the ring. But I'm better for it. And I don't resent those guys. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that would be an environment everyone would enjoy. But it, it, it fit perfectly with your phrase there that uncomfortable does not necessarily mean unsafe. Hmm. Mm, yeah, I, I, and I, I like that you as a as a few things as well. That and what, one is the boxing thing. Cause I've I've done some some boxing classes myself, like sparring classes and and boxing training and stuff. And it's it, that's incredibly uncomfortable. It's it's physically uncomfortable. Someone's hitting you in the face, but but it's it's but it's psychologically safe. In fact, it almost has to be because mm. because if I need to take a time out. Or something, then then I have to feel safe to put my hand up and say, I, I need I need a moment. And so yeah, so there is a massive difference between feeling psychologically safe and feeling comfortable. Comfortable isn't necessarily going to get us anywhere. No, it's back to the the, the sort of lovey dovey, um, you know, super cozy yeah. environment is yeah, exactly not, yeah not, yeah not that helpful. All right, so a couple of things just to just to tidy up. I mean, first one is is a question I want to ask you. Uh, picking up on something you said, which I think was another important insight, and that you said anyone can destroy psychological safety, which is, is is very true. So, but what I wanted to ask you about is is maybe some advice on on what you do when you see that. The, the thing that that came to my mind in particular when you were talking about it is that sometimes some of us, and I will hold my hand up, and I can think of examples of when this happened, and I did this, where temporarily maybe something affected us and we changed. I mean, I remember one, one I'll, I'll, I'll share one occasion where there was a big change. I was very negatively affected and it, and it did, it did hurt me. Mm. And then I ended up in another team as a consequence and my behavior in that team wasn't great. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I think I remember about that was the manager, uh, the leader who, who, who um, actually I'd lost out to um, in the change handled it brilliantly and he took me aside and he was very gentle about it but he he made it very clear that i was being an <laughs> and i was and i knew yep. it um but but that's important though isn't it if somebody is being a wrecker it's got to be handled carefully yeah 
Yeah, for sure. And and I think most of us with any um, with any kind of tenure in management and leadership can think back to times. And I, I know there are times that I, I make me very uncomfortable even to think about um, because I know I acted badly um and and i can i can rationalize it through things that i was going through personally things i was going through at work um but for whatever reason um or whatever catalyzed it i acted badly and that wasn't certainly wasn't right certainly not proud of it um uh and so there's, yeah there's a couple of points there one is the capacity of other people around you whether they're in your team outside your team whether they're uh, your uh, coach or a mentor that you have to be able to safely and kindly call that out and 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 help you adjust or readjust um and i and I, I use the word kind because kind doesn't necessarily mean nice but it does mean with positive intent so you can be firm and even harsh with someone at the same time as being kind um and but i think the same we kind of need to point that back on ourselves a little bit and 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 uh, give ourselves, encourage ourselves to, to Im- build our capacity to self-reflect. Uh, don't mean, you know, we, we don't want to go diving down rabbit holes of, of, of deep introspection forever and ever because we do need to get on with our, with our lives. But uh, I think our capacity to regularly self-reflect, whether that's with the help of a mentor or a coach or, or, or building our own capacity to do so is incredibly important. And that's how we're going to, how to some degree we can keep ourselves in check. Mm, mm, yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, uh, we're running out of time, Tom. Um, I, I mean, as, as John Lee Dumas, famous podcaster, would say, you've given already given us plenty of value bombs all the way through, but I'm <laughs> going to ask you, um, any last thoughts that you'd like to leave people with? I would... I would like to leave people with with the mission of psychological safety, which is to make the world of work a safer, more equitable and high performance space. That's our mission at psychological safety, psychsafety.co.uk. And if, if, any, if there's anything that any of your listeners can do themselves or suggest to other people or suggest even to, to me to help achieve that mission across the world, we're moving forward. We're doing the right thing. Well, Tom Garrity, thank you for a truly fascinating and enlightening conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. That was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. I have to say, I really enjoyed my conversation with Tom. And I hope you enjoyed listening to us talk and got some useful insights. I mean, we call the topics we covered myths, but I suppose you could call them pitfalls. Things to be avoided if you're looking to create a truly psychologically safe environment. So that's it for the season. Again, a big thank you to all those who took part. I learned a lot and I had fun. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, do leave a comment. And if you're thinking that podcasting might be something that could help you communicate as a leader of any kind, drop me an email and let's chat. I'm Paul Gisby of Talking Leaders. We help leaders who want to get heard, be understood, and to build trust. Goodbye.